All right, good morning, everyone. Here we are. This is our last Sunday morning of just one service at 10 a.m. So I'm curious to see who's going to come to the 9 o'clock service. Okay, all right. How about the 11 o'clock service? All right, that's great. That's a good split. I love it. What you want to make sure is you don't come at 10 o'clock because then you'll just be catching the tail end of uh, worship from the first service. So it's good. I, I want to give you the encouragement today and also the reminder that although uh, moving forward we're going to have two Sunday morning services, we're still one church. Amen? Amen? This is our family, and as Rob was just sharing, there's so many activities that happen during the week that can connect us, and I, I believe that what we have going for us in this church is that this is a, a joyfully united community of believers. Do you see it? Amen. Amen. But a good reason for us to go to two services is to have a little bit more space. You know, you won't be touching the elbow of some stranger next to you, maybe. Uh, but what we want to see and what we want to prepare ourselves for is to continue to see the Lord bring people into his kingdom. Those people would hear the gospel, that they would come. And, and what we'd see in the coming weeks and months and years uh, as we gather as a church is that more and more people would come to know Jesus, that people would bring the real you to the real Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I just want to thank everyone for the support and the encouragement that has just been uh, felt by this church body, uh, just in support of all that God's doing here. So if you've been with us here on Sunday mornings, then you know that we've been studying the book of Nehemiah. So you can open your Bible there to Nehemiah chapter 6 and 7. You can turn there with me. And as you're doing so, uh, just when you think that we're going to move on from the subject of opposition, we come into chapter 6 to find more of it. It's funny, if you've you know, maybe only been with us this month, you think, man, does this church only talk about spiritual opposition? Well, <laughs> we're teaching what's in the Word, and there's three consecutive chapters concerning spiritual opposition. And so two weeks ago, when we studied chapter 4, we saw Sanballat and Tobiah and an army of mocking enemies. They planned a series of attacks against the Jews. And as the wall was only halfway built and the people were working really hard, the enemies tried to come in and thwart that good work by speaking lies and sowing confusion. And so what did Nehemiah do? We saw that Nehemiah armed his workers. So in one hand, he told the people to hold the sword, which resembles the word of God that we hold, which is the sword of the spirit. And in the other hand, they were to hold the trowel, which was to speak of how they were to continue to progress in the work that God had called them to. And thankfully, in that chapter, chapter 4, we saw that the opposition from the outside failed, and the people were able to continue the work. Just real quick, could you just bring my microphone down a little bit, just because I feel like I'm holding back, and I want to, I don't want to. <laughs> I'm not going to hold back. Here we go, chapter 5. Okay. <laughs> and... You know, what we saw in chapter 5 is that the people were faced with opposition again, only this time the opposition didn't come from the outside, but rather the opposition came from the inside, that during a famine, the 
um, the Jewish nobles and officials, what they were doing was drawing debt interest on their fellow brethren. And, and it got so bad that they were enslaving children. They were enslaving their brother's children. And this spoke of the reality of how conflict can exist among God's people. And that when God's people are fighting against themselves, you know what that does? It, it essentially gives the enemy a little vacation, where the enemy can just sit back and watch as he enjoys watching Christians defeat themselves all on their own. But at the end of chapter 5, what we saw was through repentance and restitution and reconciliation that the leaders agreed that they were going to make right their wrongs. And they gave back the money that they had unjustly taken from their brethren. They released the children back to their families and then order and love and unity was restored back to the people of God. And then the work of God was able to continue. They, they were able to build again. Because you see, while there was internal conflict in Jerusalem, the work had to stop. That speaks so well to how when um, there is conflict among God's people, we're really not doing very well at ministering to others. And so... Yet as we head into chapter 6, what we're going to see is, thankfully, the building was able to continue again. And we might think that since we've already heard about opposition from the outside, and we've heard about opposition from the inside, then we would have covered every kind of opposition that there is. Well, not really, because in chapter 6, what we're going to see is that Nehemiah will be personally attacked that his enemies will come to seek to kill him. In this chapter, it's, it's going to kind of play out a little bit like a suspense thriller. And the opposition, the opposition we'll see today is the kind of spiritual warfare that requires mature discernment to recognize. Nehemiah was thankfully spiritually mature enough to see what his enemies were trying to do because the opposition that was coming toward him was subtle, it was tricky. It was cunning. And this is when the enemy is scheming. And today what we're going to learn about is scheming opposition. Now before we get into the text, here's what I just want to say. And it's a good point because we're three weeks into this now speaking about spiritual warfare, spiritual opposition. And the principle is this, you guys, is for us to understand just based on where we've been in this book over the last few weeks that the spiritual battle is never over in this life. It's never over. That the spiritual battle is always changing both in strategy and intensity Sometimes the battle will be overt. Sometimes the battle will be covert. Sometimes the warfare will be great. Sometimes it will be small. But spiritual warfare, spiritual opposition toward those who do good work for Jesus will not end in this life. When will it end? It will end when Jesus sends every last worker of evil into the lake of fire. So until then, we stand firm, we do everything to gird ourselves up, to put on the whole armor of God and to stand and to resist. And so as we get into Nehemiah chapter 6 today, we're going to see how this discerning and wise leader 
was able to face this scheming opposition from his enemies. So look with me at verses 1 and 2. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together at Hecapharim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. So the enemies heard, right, that the wall was pretty much finished. Um, The text doesn't really tell us exactly the feelings that these enemies had concerning the news that the wall was near completion, but it's not hard to think about what the enemies might be feeling at this point. You know, the enemies thought that it wouldn't have happened, that the wall wouldn't have been built, but now it was, and they were proven wrong. And I don't think these guys liked being proven wrong. And when people get proven wrong, I think what it often causes is bitterness. And the second thing that I believe they were perhaps feeling was that maybe they were envious of the work. You know, they really had no part in building the wall because they were too busy mocking it. You remember Tobiah saying, oh, if a fox walks up on that wall, the thing's going to break down. But now they see that the wall is built and that the work of God was blessed and that really bothered them and they were likely envious. You know, the book of James talks about bitterness and envy and where those feelings come from. Look at this verse in James chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. This is in the New King James Version. It says, but if you have bitter envy... And self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Now what I believe is that Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, they were being driven by bitter envy in their hearts. And and as James says, this is demonic wisdom. In fact, this is the same demonic wisdom that the religious leaders had in their hearts when they crucified Jesus, the Son of God. It was out of envy, you guys, that Jesus was murdered. Do you realize that? And so with bitter envy, what Nehemiah sees here is that his enemies intend to do him harm. Let's look real briefly at a definition of envy. This is a good one that comes from a a very respectable source called Wikipedia. (laughs) I think it's probably one of the best definitions of envy I've ever seen. It says this, envy occurs when a person lacks another's superior quality, achievement, or possession, and either desires it, or listen to this, or wishes that the other lacked it. It's not so much that you would desire what other people have. That's envy or jealousy. But envy, it has this way where you would just be fine if the person that you envy doesn't have what they have. And, And as James says, this is demonic wisdom. So if you take that definition of envy, you can see how that is exactly how Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem were probably feeling 
It's not so much that they wanted to have their part in building the wall, that they could care less about a brick wall around the city of Jerusalem. But what they didn't want was for the Jews to have a walled city because what that would mean is that the Jewish people would prosper. And if their people would prosper, maybe they would prosper beyond their neighboring nations. And so they would do everything in order to stop the work of the Jews from growing and seeing those people succeed. And so as a way to try to keep the Jewish people underneath them and lesser than them, these enemies seek with bitter envy to try to stop the work. And I would just tell you, church, to be very careful of envy, especially if it's bitter envy, because it's a silent killer. Again, we're talking about the subtle things that find their places within our hearts that are not of the Lord. And remember, it is out of envy that Jesus was crucified. And so, the wall is so close to being finished. But as Nehemiah said there in verse 1, there's still some opening of the gates. He tells us that he still needed to set up the doors in the gates. So they were so close, right? They were, I would say, you know, estimate maybe 95% of the way done. Only 5% of the work needed to be finished in order for them to complete the task. But, but if you're anything like me, isn't the last 5% the hardest? You know, you're cleaning your house and you're like, yeah, I'll save that part for later. <laughs> you got a junk drawer, don't you? I think many people struggle to finish well. And we see this a lot in our human nature. And maybe you see it in yourself that people do not like to bring things to their final end. Um, and it, there's a struggle for people to finish well because, well, almost done might as well be mostly done, and I guess it's done, and we stop short of completion. What we do is we, we're satisfied with just the 95%, but Nehemiah wasn't going to do that. He's a godly leader, and he's going to see this project through to completion, and you guys, in our spiritual lives, it's, it's not okay to be mostly protected and to leave a few little breaches here and there. See, we cannot leave these little breaches in the wall. God comes and he wants to finish his work in you. God wants to bring you to completion and it says that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion, but we as his followers are also called to run the race with endurance and to finish the race. And so they need to finish. So what's the situation we have here? Who, who are the players involved? You've got Sanballat, you've got Tobiah, uh, another guy named Geshem, and these were the men who were envious of the work of Nehemiah. Then you have Nehemiah, and you've got his, his workers, the Jewish people who are determined to finish the work. What's going to happen? Well, let's see what happens next. Well, before we see what happens next, I just want you to understand what the enemies, I think, are scheming to do in this moment, is that they want to distract Nehemiah from finishing. They knew that there were still a few small breaches in the wall, you know, that, that there were these little openings in the door, that last 5%. 
and they've used every single tactic so far to come against the work of the building of the wall. They have, uh, they have mocked it. They have discouraged. They have caused the people to despair. They have sowed confusion. They have breathed threats. But now they're going to use another tactic, and let's see what's going to happen here in verse 2. You're going to see that the enemies are going to pretend to be nice to Nehemiah. In fact, they're going to invite Nehemiah on a little getaway. We'll hang out. Verse 2, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. Now look, I, I don't know for sure the exact tone of this invitation, but I'm pretty convinced that it came across rather friendly, right? Where, where the feeling of the invitation to me seems kind of like this. Hey, hey, Nehemiah, good old pal, how you doing? You've been working so hard on that wall down there. Wow, you're pretty much finished, aren't you? Looks like, wow, just a couple spots in the gates that need to be finished. Why don't you just take a little break? Why don't you come down to the plains of Ono, have a little R&R, a &R, little rest and relaxation? Come on. You know, the work will get finished. It's okay. It'll get finished. But just come. Come down. Don't worry. You need a break. You need to come down on a little vacation with us down to the plain of Ono. But Nehemiah could see right through it. He said, but they intended to do me harm. Nehemiah had enough discernment to see that these guys weren't inviting him on a BFF weekend. <laughs> they were trying to harm him. They wanted to kill him. And what was the giveaway? How did Nehemiah discern this? Well, look at where they invited him to. The enemies invited him to the plains of Ono. And Nehemiah could say, oh, no. Sorry, guys, I had to do it. <laughs> you know, I'm working on my dad joke catalog, so. So good. Now, oh no, this place. It was about 19 miles from Jerusalem. It was a place that many commentators say was the perfect location for an assassination. It was secluded enough, it was spread out enough that these guys could do the evil thing that they had in their heart to do, and to do it without being seen. And so in verse 3, Nehemiah says, and I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work, I cannot come down. Why should I stop the work while I leave it and come down to you? So Nehemiah could discern their intentions, that they wanted to harm him, and so he sent back to them saying, hey, sorry guys, I, I cannot come down. I've got other things going on, more important things to do this weekend, can't come, thanks for the invitation. I love that Nehemiah's response here was short, it was direct, and, and I love it, I especially love where he says there, I am doing a great work, I cannot come down. I think that's the nugget verse of chapter six. So what's the application? The application is that the enemy is always gonna wanna bring you down from where you are. And it's often after great spiritual highs that the enemy tries to bring us into great spiritual lows. But it doesn't have to be that way. You know, you can say to the enemy, I am up here. 
I am doing a great work. I cannot come down to do less important things, especially if they be sinful things. And the enemy will always try to distract you from the great work that God wants to do either in you or through you by inviting you into less important matters. And I, I could spend a whole I could spend a great deal of time trying to give examples of this, but I think you understand the idea. I think you have many instances that you can point to in your own life when you have been positioned well with the Lord, where you have been making great spiritual progress in your discipleship to Jesus. And you're in a place where you're doing great work for him. But what the enemy comes to do is he tries to call you away from that place into empty plains. It's just a scheme of distraction to try to stop you from seeing God's good hand which is upon you. It's subtle. Subtle, you guys. It requires discernment to see. But know this, that God has very important work for us to do. And the enemy is always going to try to keep us from doing it. He will always try to distract us with lesser and lower things. And whether they are sinful things or just not helpful things, the enemy will want to pull you away from the things that are going to make a real impact either in your life or through your life. So what does Nehemiah do? He declines the invitation. Verse four, and they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So when the enemies failed to distract Nehemiah the first time and try to call him away on a little uh, vacation, what they end up doing is they use annoyance until they can try to succeed. One commentator calls this tactic of the enemy nipping at the heels you guys uh, ever seen a little dog trying to play with a big dog? And, and how the, the little dog just annoys the big dog by running up behind it and nipping at its heels? And, and the big dog could care less about that little dog. And, and that is the picture that I see here. So, so let Satan be the little dog. And you be the big dog. And, and, and just keep walking Just keep ignoring him, and every once in a while, give him a little, you know? (laughs) See, Nehemiah was fine with this nipping at the heels, with this annoyance from the enemy. And the best part is he just gave them the same answer four times. See, the enemy will try to use all sorts of things to try to pull us away, and what do we use? We use the simple gospel. Just use a simple gospel on Satan. That's all you need. He he wants to work you up. He wants to move you away from the place of simple and direct truth. That in Jesus you have overcome the enemy. That we are more than victorious in Jesus Christ. And, And yet the enemies were incessant. They kept asking again and again and again, come down, Nehemiah, come down, come down. Because when your spiritual adversaries can't win by distracting you the first time, they're just going to continue to annoy you until you come down to where they are. But you do not have to come down. You can stay where you are 
position with Jesus. You are positioned with Jesus, aren't you? You are in him. You know your identity in him. You are a redeemed child of God. You are hidden with Christ in God. Are you walking in sobriety? Do not come down. Are you walking in purity? Do not come down. Are you walking in integrity, in joy, in peace? Are you walking in the righteousness that is yours through Jesus Christ? Do not come down from that place. You are in a good place. You're positioned with Christ, and when the enemy annoys you, you do not have to come down to his level. Verse 4 says, I answered them in the same manner. I love that. Nehemiah's like, oh. I'm not coming down. I'm not coming down. I'm not coming down. I'm not coming down. Four times he sent the same thing. I don't think he changed his response. He kept it simple. He kept it direct, and he knew where he was. And so when plan A, which was distraction, failed, and plan B, which was annoyance, failed, the enemies go to plan C. Look at verses 5 through 7. In the same way, Sambalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to be their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Do you see what the enemy is doing here? See, the next tactic that he does is he, they are spreading lies about Nehemiah and the Jews. They were creating these rumors about Nehemiah wanting to rebel against King Artaxerxes by trying to set up his own throne in Judah to become a king saying that he was sending prophets out to announce this new kingship. So what they were doing is they were slandering Nehemiah as a leader, and they were spreading rumors about him among the people. They said that there would be reports that would be going out to King Artaxerxes if Nehemiah didn't take counsel together with them. And so with an intense effort coming from the enemy, And for many people, guys, this kind of scheming of slander often works. Slander is a nasty weapon. It's a nasty weapon that can do a lot of damage. And Nehemiah received this letter saying that he was doing these things that he was not actually doing, that he was trying to be king. They said that Nehemiah was rebelling against the Persians and that they were going to go and tell King Artaxerxes all about it. And if anything could have gotten Nehemiah all worked up, this was it. This was it. These lies and these rumors about him could have crippled him and the work that he was doing. Yet he stayed strong in his identity and in his calling. He resisted the enemy's attempts to pull him down. He knew that the things in this letter were not true. And he also knew that they were not official. Did you notice the kind of letter that it was? It says there that it was an open letter. 
meaning that it was not an official government document. If the letter was official, it would have been a closed letter with a seal upon it. But it was an open letter. It was unofficial. Nothing in it was true. And Nehemiah had the discernment not to believe a word of it. And obviously, because it was not true, Nehemiah had the character and the conduct that could disprove what was being said about him. That's where we should desire to be in our lives, where Nehemiah was. We, we would call this being above reproach. Do you know what that means, to be above reproach? To reproach somebody is to say some, something about someone. So to be above reproach means being above what somebody might be able to say about you. And what they're saying, whether it's true or false, you're above it. Because your character and your conduct are good and you're right before the Lord and before man. But look, sometimes the enemy will accuse you. Sometimes the enemy will slander you, and he's right. See, what the enemy loves to do is to highlight our sin and to slander us with our sin. And this can be a hard thing to overcome as a struggling child of God. Because, because sometimes the sins that the devil charges you with are true. But if you can find your refuge in Jesus, and you, you can find refuge in Jesus, it doesn't matter what charges the enemy brings against you if you are in Christ. Because what he has said about you is official. So don't listen to those open letters from the enemy. You have what God has said about you. You have his word. You have the guaranteed seal of the Holy Spirit upon you. But listen, can I just encourage you that the best and the easiest way to overcome rumors about you is to make sure they're not actually true. As a spiritual leader, it is always better to let your conduct defend your character. The Apostle Paul said this in Acts 24, 16, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. But sometimes, again, the enemy's going to want to accuse your conscience, and sometimes he's right, and it's hard to overcome, isn't it? Just me? Right. The devil may say all sorts of things about you, but you can say right back, you know what? What you say might be true. I, I am a wretched sinner, but Jesus has forgiven me. Jesus has covered me with his perfect character and conduct. His blood has washed me, and God sees me in Christ. But again, the best and easiest way to overcome rumors and lies about your character is just make sure it's not true. But even if it is true, go straight to Jesus, and he will be your advocate. Go to Jesus and say, Lord, fight my battles for me, and he will defend you from the accusations of the enemy. You know, Jesus is in that business of clearing our guilt. That's why he died on a cross. And the word that his blood speaks over us is a better word. It's a word of mercy. 
So let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Then I said to him, saying, No such thing that you've been saying has been done, for you are inventing them in your own mind. Again, Nehemiah was confident that his conscience was clear before the Lord and before man. And, and so these accusations, they were lies. But it didn't stop these lies from coming and by putting Nehemiah's reputation at risk. And this is what the enemy wants to do. You guys, Satan is a liar. You know that? He is a liar. Revelation 12.10 says about Satan, the accuser of the brother. He accuses you day and night before your God. John 8.44, this is what Jesus said about our enemy. He said, you are your father, the devil. He was speaking to the religious leaders here. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar and the father of lies. That's how Jesus identified our enemy. Satan hates the truth. He hates everything that is of God because God is truth. Therefore, he will always be a liar against the things that testify about the truth of God. So who are you going to stand with? Who will you testify of? Will you stand in the truth, which would be to stand with Jesus, your great defender of truth? Or, or will you stand with the enemy? Because if you're not standing with Jesus in his truth, then, then you are standing in the lies of the enemy. And, and what Satan does say is true. You, you are a rebel of the king. Our sin puts us in rebellion to King Jesus. But Jesus has redeemed us as his very own children, so you are no longer a rebel of the king. You are a child and a servant of the king. So whatever the enemy wants to say about you, know who you are in Christ. Nehemiah knew that King Artaxerxes had sent him to build the wall, but much more he knew that God had sent him. He wasn't trying to be the king of Judah. He wanted to be a servant of God and a servant of man. And so, so far, the enemy has used distraction and annoyance and slander. There's still more, you guys. What is the enemy going to use next? Fear. Look at verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Oh, I love this. You know, the Bible says a lot about fear. This week in our men's Bible study, we learned that uh, those words, do not fear, occur 365 times in our Bible. That's one for every day of the year. Why? Because we often do fall into fear. It is a, it's a good tactic of the enemy to try to bring us down. But remember who the Lord is, that he is your refuge and your safety. He is your peace and your comfort. He is your provider and your protector. And if you fear the Lord, whom else shall you fear? So Psalm 27, 1, the psalmist can say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 1 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So do you see what Nehemiah does again in verse 9? He prays again. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And when he could see that fear threatening and even perhaps rising up within his heart, what did he do? He prayed. He said, Lord, strengthen my hands. Because the enemy wants to have my hands drop from the work. Nehemiah was at a point where at 95%, he could have called it quits. I'm done with this opposition. And let go and walk away. But he prayed, oh God, strengthen my hands. You know, sometimes the appropriate prayer is not, God, take away this opposition, but God, strengthen me in this opposition. Both prayers would be appropriate. Both prayers would be fine. You, you can pray, God, take away this opposition, and praise God. He, he sometimes does. He pulls that back. But other times we pray that prayer, Lord God, strengthen me in the midst of this opposition because I know you're doing a good thing in me and you're growing me. See, he knows the work that God is doing and that it's good work. And although the opposition bombarded him day after day after day, he asked the Lord to give him strength to continue believing that God would do it. And I believe God gave Nehemiah the strength in this moment. Why? Because look, there's more. <laughs> there's more. Verse 10. Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehatabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, and they're coming, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. Look, I would read this, and I think, Go, Nehemiah, go. That's the safest place. Go meet in the house of God. Go to the temple. Go to church, Nehemiah. That's the place for you. Go hide there. But it says that this man, Shemaiah, who was supposed to be a spiritual leader of Israel, he was a priest who served in the house of God. He was inviting Nehemiah to come to the temple and to hide there, but he was conspiring with the enemy. And he says, Nehemiah, come to the house of God. You can hide in the temple. You're going to be safe there. And that seems legit, right? Isn't this supposed to be the safest place we can gather? It should be. I pray this would be the safest place for you to gather. But for Nehemiah, it wasn't because Nehemiah had the discernment to know that even Shemaiah, the priest, was a secret informant of the enemy. Perhaps what tipped Nehemiah off to this scheme was that only priests were allowed at the temple, and Nehemiah was not a priest. He wasn't allowed in there. Nehemiah knew his place with God, and he knew that he was not to be in the position of a priest. And this priest was not submitted to God's law. This priest was saying, you can come into the temple when he was not allowed to. That would have been breaking God's laws. So Nehemiah couldn't catch the break Let's see how Nehemiah responds to Shemaiah's invitation. We're bringing this in for a landing. Verse 11 through 13 says, But I said, should such, as a, such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. 
And I understood and saw God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Wow. So Nehemiah could see through the scheming. He saw the distraction. He saw the annoyances. He saw the slander and false accusations. He saw the provoking to fear. And now he's seeing how they want him to hide. Notice that Nehemiah believes that responding to any of these schemes of the enemy would be sin. He says, these guys are trying to cause fear in me and cause me to hide. They want me to act that way in sin. Christian, the enemy cannot change the fact that you are a child of God, that you are a redeemed person, but if the enemy can get you to act distracted, to get you to act annoyed, to act accused, to act afraid, the enemy is pleased. But Nehemiah said, I will not act in those ways because that would be sin. Nehemiah said, should such a man as I run away? And that might seem a little bit like a prideful statement, like, I'm not going to run away. But no, this speaks of the confidence that Nehemiah had in his identity and that he was positioned in steadfast faith with his God. He would not move away from his identity. He would not move away from his position with God because that would be sin. Romans 14 says, anything apart from faith is sin. If you move apart from faith, if you move toward what you see always rather than walking by what is unseen, trusting God to lead you, then that is acting in sin. And so Nehemiah prayed an honest prayer in verse 14. He said, remember Sambalat and Tobiah, oh my God, according to these things that they did and also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Isn't that so sad that in this chapter you're seeing priests and prophets and prophetesses trying to stir up lies and fear when they were supposed to be people of truth and faith. And the New Testament is very clear that in the last days, many false prophets and false teachers will come and try to lead people astray. But we need to have the discernment to stay in faith and in the truth. Verse 15 and 16 says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month. Did you just see that? The wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Isn't that so good? See, God vindicated himself. The people remained faithful. Do you know how long those walls were in ruins? A hundred years. And they were rebuilt in 52 days. See, when God has his hand on the work, there's no limit to the great things that God can do. And, and the finishing of the wall was a great accomplishment. It, it silenced the enemies. It gave the people of God a joyful satisfaction. It caused the enemies to fall within their own esteem, and it made the people of God rise up in their hearts to glorify God. 
And I love that because it just speaks about finishing a work. Like Paul was able to say at the end of his life that I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Don't you want to say that at the end of your life? Amen. And then verse 17 through 19, we see that Tobiah sends more letters in verse 17. In verse 18, it says that many people were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law. There was this whole web of people scheming together. Verse 19, it says, and they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent me letters to make me afraid. Do you see what's saying there? It just kept coming. The oppression just kept coming. The opposition kept coming, but Nehemiah stayed strong. And the wall was finished. The wall was built in 52 days, and Nehemiah stood strong, and he did not come down. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would take to heart what has been spoken here and live these truths out in our daily lives. We love you, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing in our midst of this good work that you're doing in these lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, as we end here, I want to tie this all into Jesus, our great Nehemiah. Where do you see Jesus in this story? You could probably find a few places where you would see Nehemiah resemble Jesus. Um, But here's one I see. You know when the enemy was saying to Nehemiah, come down? And Nehemiah was saying, I will not come down. Does that cause you to remember that when Jesus was hanging on the cross for you, to bring the finished work of the cross for your sins and to bring you into reconciliation with God, that there were the taunters and the mockers and the people who were saying, hey, Jesus, why don't you come down off that cross and save yourself? Come down off that cross and save yourself. And you know that Jesus could have called like a whole legion of angels down to just take those dudes out. But what did he do? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they're saying, come down off that cross, save yourself. You say you're a savior, why don't you come down off that cross? And Jesus, without even needing to speak a word back, knew what he was doing on that cross. And to his father, he said, Father, I will not come down. I will not come down. I will not come down. And why would Jesus not come down off that cross? Because he wanted to bring you up to the position of where he is, which is to be a child of God. And if you have not been brought up to be a child of God, today is the day to do that. Jesus did not come down off that cross and it wasn't nails that held him there. It was his love for you. He stayed on that cross and he did not come down so that the finished work of the cross could be given to you so that at the end of his life, he could cry out to Telestai. It is finished. It is paid in full. Your sins have been paid in full and you can come to Jesus and be complete in him, amen? Is there anyone right now who wants to do that? 
you've seen the opposition in your life. You've seen the attacks of the enemy upon your life, upon your family, and you want the protection. You want the covering of Jesus. You want God to fight your battles. You're tired. You're weary. You need God in your life. Jesus says, I did not come down so you can come to me. Will you come to Jesus today? Is there anyone here right now who wants to come to Jesus today and put your faith in him? I see you right there. Praise the Lord. Amen. I see you right there, sweetie. Is there anyone else? Right there, brother. I see you. Praise God. Well, let's pray this prayer right now, and anyone can participate in this prayer right now to to surrender your life to Jesus and to make him your king. Pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus. I believe that I am a sinner. I I believe that my character and conduct are with fault. But Jesus, you are perfect. And in your perfection, you came and you died on a cross. And you did not come down from that cross because you were saving me. And I hear your invitation to me. It's not like any invitation that I've heard from the enemy. It's a loving and a merciful invitation. You're saying to me, come. I'm saying, come. I'm, I'm going to come. And, it, and in whatever way you need to pray that sort of prayer to say, I'm coming to Jesus. You pray that right now. And God hears your prayer. And so, Lord, I pray right now, God, that you would strengthen our hands for the work of God that's ahead. God, I thank you that we're coming out of three chapters of opposition and we're coming in next week to the revival of the people. So God, revive your people. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's all stand up together for one final song. And we've got some new brothers and sisters in Christ here and we've got this beautiful family. We'll see you, uh, well, let's worship, okay. We got prayer team up here.